Amen. Please be seated and please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8. I have the passage for you on the insert. This is the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit working through the Apostles. And we have come to this place in this uh, incredible narrative of the early church's expansion and explosion and its persecution. All of these go together. Um, We are just on the heels of Stephen being murdered, martyred the first time a Christian was put to death for declaring the message of Christ. And it was certainly the intention of those leaders who put him to death to squash Christianity, to crush it, to end it there. And a a great outbreak of persecution happened after um, a certain license uh, was felt among the Jews and Saul, the young Pharisee, drag people from their homes even to have them arrested and some even killed. The event made it unsafe for many Christians to stay in Jerusalem. They weren't there as natives. They were Greek Jews, and so they had to leave. They had to scatter from that place. And you might think that this event, the trauma of it all, would worry them about bringing this message the way Stephen did wherever they went. It might bring persecution upon them, but instead you see entirely the opposite thing happening. A great message to us as even barriers that would come up to preaching the gospel, like being scared, but also like um, racial ones and class barriers and all sorts of barriers that humans put up, they just go down as the gospel's proclaimed, and we see it exploding here in this passage before us. Here now as I read God's Word, this is Acts chapter 8, I will start with verse 4 and read to verse 25. This is the Word of the Living and true God. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him Because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, 
Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, Please give us aid by your Spirit to understand your Word and to apply it to our lives. Give us boldness about the gospel that overcomes any barriers, any apprehension, any embarrassment that we fear or we might have with how people could respond. Lord, please bring down any walls that we may feel with people so that we may have opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It really was an an amazing time of expansion in the church that should have been really a time of regression. It should have been shrinking after what happened to Stephen. So vivid and so brutal. Yet, with the killing of Stephen and the fleeing of people for their immediate safety, it actually worked to expand the, the preaching of the gospel, the message of Christ. Verse 4 in our passage. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Despite concern about persecution for preaching the gospel, like it happened in Jerusalem, those who were leaving Jerusalem were declaring the message of Christ as they went. And notice, please, all of us believers, these are not the apostles. The apostles were back in Jerusalem. Even Stephen was a deacon and Philip is a deacon. These are regular Christians. These are just people like you and I who've come to Christ, and as they go and as they're scattered, they are sharing the message of salvation through Christ. Adding to the wonderment of this happening or this occurrence, the gospel is clearly working to transcend the old barriers, the the old human barriers that exist in every place in some way or other. Race, class, culture, gender, whatever. All these barriers seem to melt away as the proclamation of the good news goes forth. Very simply, the Jews did not like, in fact, they hated the Samaritans. Yet you see that old sinful division. It didn't matter. As the scattering Christians worked through Samaria, they shared the gospel of Christ. The gospel transforms people who hear it, and then it's preached, and it transforms more people. That's the beauty of the gospel at work. Transformation takes place when the gospel is preached, and because of this, there should be no barriers to whom we preach this message. In fact, we see this very well displayed in the first two verses. There should be no barriers for the gospel. We are to preach this message to everyone. Now, I want you to notice something about verse 4 and verse 5. Very synonymous actions happening, but look closely. Now those who were scattered went about, and it says, preaching the word. Now, the actual language here is a little bit different than verse 5, where we read, Philip proclaimed to them Christ. Now, it's, 
an overlapping activity for sure. But in verse 4, the people who were scattered went about preaching the word. The word here is special for sharing the gospel. It's the Greek word euangalypso, which comes from a speaking or gospeling. Literally, it's a declaring of the gospel. It could be informal as well as formal. It's, it's specific to a message declared. It's the message of the good news of salvation from our sins, the just desert of our sins through trust in Christ. That's the gospel message. And they were euangelizoing. They were sharing the gospel. They were preaching the word, the word about Christ. And so that's just the, that's just the activity of people as they were going about. More informal. But then you get to verse 5. In verse 5, it's a different word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. This is a more formal, uh, a more official declaration of this message. It's caruso is the word here. It's the general word for preaching something, speaking to something with authority. So in both verse 4 and verse 5, there is a, an out-and-out proclamation of the word of God, which is the same as the preaching of Jesus. The, the word of God is the word about Christ. That's the testimony of the Bible. We'll see that in a bit a little further. But for now, just recognize, without discrimination, people as they go are sharing the gospel, and now Philip comes more officially to Samaria to proclaim Christ to them. Notice that Philip we learn earlier in the book of Acts, is a Greek Jew. Remember that division between the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews, those who were more indigenous to Jerusalem and those who were in the the wider Greek world at the time but were, were thoroughbred Jews, if you will? Philip was one of those, but he spoke Greek, and he had connection with the Greek culture as well. But Philip did not get hung up on the old barrier between the Samaritans and the Jews when he declares the message of the gospel to them. Now, understand a bit how deep-seated this hatred was between the Jews and the Samaritans. Hopefully, it hasn't been too long yet. You remember back to the book of Isaiah. It was written in 700 B.C. At that time, the kingdom of Israel had split into two parts. Ten tribes to the north, called Israel, the northern kingdom. Two tribes to the south, called Judah, the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom were the, the true Jews, you might say. They still had Jerusalem. The northern kingdom was assimilated by the Assyrians 700 years before this time period that we're reading about. Now, over the course of time, they became more and more assimilated with the Assyrians and their false religions and philosophies and gods and practices. Yet, they would consistently say they were still Jewish, and that would really, really bother the true Jews. It's sort of like when someone who claims to be Italian goes to the Olive Garden and says, this is Italian. No, it's not. And over the course of time, the the Samaritans kept trying to draw back on their Jewish heritage, and it just drove a greater wedge between those who were the true Jews, as they saw it, and those who were the Samaritans with this assimilated, syncretistic religion and culture that they had. Kent Hughes describes the thought about the Samaritans. He said, to the Jews... The Samaritans were a mongrel nation of half-breeds. A known prayer from the Jews at this time, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans and their resurrection. Jewish rabbis taught, let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. 
there was deep hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is what makes Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan so shocking to people. Deep-seated, hateful, racist, classist, ethnicism that just drove them apart. Yet, with the gospel coming, the barrier goes down. Philip, verse 5, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Um, The city of Samaria, probably Neapolis, or the ancient city of Shechem. There were many cities in this Samaritan region, which was north of Jerusalem. It says they went down. That just means in elevation. It was rarely to the north, but Jerusalem was high, and then they went down into Samaria to preach the gospel, and in a particular city. And look at the response as the message goes forth from this Jewish believer now, speaking to members of the lost tribes, um, these people that could not see the fulfillment of Messiah. They were lost in their disbelief, in the syncretism that they had laid hold of. Now the gospel's preached. Verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. God gives those special abilities to cast out demons, to heal the sick. This gives credibility to their being messengers as they preach this apostolic gospel to them. Verse 7, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. They saw the fruit of the Spirit in their midst as the gospel was clearly proclaimed and preached, declared, Jesus the Messiah, In this next passage, verse 8, and there was much joy in that city. There's always joy wherever salvation comes. But the Samaritans weren't your rank-and-file pagans who had never heard the roots of Christianity. The Samaritans had the vestige of Judaism, and they were known as the lost tribes. They were the ones that were displaced. Now they had Messiah. Now, by God's Spirit, they laid hold of Christ, the Anointed One. And so there was great joy, it says in the passage, Much joy in that city. It's a deep joy because of what had been lost and now what had been gained as they had come to know Christ. Now, I want you to notice who's doing the preaching here. Verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. These are regular Christians, if you will. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Philip is a deacon. He's not an apostle. He's not known to be an ordained pastor or missionary as such. He is proclaiming Christ to the Samaritans. The barriers come down. People who are believers share that message of belief in Christ with whomever God places in their path. Bottom line is we, all of us, are to be sharing Christ wherever God places us. We are to be sharing Christ with whomever God puts in our lives. There is no restriction on which of us believers should be doing this kind of proclaiming. We all should be. In fact, I've come to think more and more as I've gone out and tried to make friends that are not believers, it doesn't take long before they find out I'm a pastor and they completely change the way they talk around me. I just don't have the opportunities. I play hockey a couple nights a week, floor, street hockey, with a bunch of guys. Been there for four months and finally one of them. You know, they look on Facebook and they see and they say, you went to seminary school, didn't you? Then all of them started asking, he must be closer to God. Ha ha, laugh, laugh. You've got a better chance than I've got. 
I mean, I'm going to proclaim the message, but you have relationships with people that you live next to, that you work with, that are your relatives, that are just natural, long-standing relationships, and you're a person they can relate with, and you can, like these who were scattered, share the gospel with them. It doesn't have to be a formal, I want to share the four spiritual laws. It doesn't have to be that. Just over time, tell them about the hope that resides in you about eternity. There's no restriction on what believers should be doing this kind of proclaiming. Which ones? There's no restriction also on who we are to share the gospel with. Anyone God places in our path. I love what Derek Thomas says about this passage. It was not the apostles who were the focus of this activity. It was those who were scattered who spread the good news. This should be an example to every Christian today. Like the early disciples, we too must take the gospel with us wherever we go and speak about Jesus in our day-to-day conversations with those whom we meet. This is the most effective evangelism of all. Who should evangelize? Whoever is a Christian. To whomever God places in your life. Now, during this evangelistic effort by Philip and the others that we're reading about, a very unique, kind of odd and a little bit weird interaction occurs. Now, scholars will puzzle a lot about this. And remember, we're reading a a description of the early church's activities, not prescriptions for the way everything would happen. You, You look more to Paul's writings to give clarity on what's normative, like what we would follow as a practice. Acts just kind of describes the way things unfold in those early days, which were very unique. And we meet an interesting character named Simon. Now, I think the story is included really as a cautionary tale related to people responding outwardly but not having an inward reality. As the message of the gospel is preached, our focus is not professions of faith. We're not preaching and declaring the message of salvation through Christ just to get people to make public professions. I'm not saying they don't count for anything or mean anything, uh, but they're not necessarily descriptive of what's really happening inside. People could say something outwardly and be baptized and not really believe. And we see a bit of this with Simon. It's a cautionary tale of, of, of sorts that we are not to make professions of faith the thing we're driving for or the end goal, but rather we are to keep preaching the gospel because God does the work of taking the gospel and rooting it in people who are believers and growing them. And those who aren't believers, he'll use the gospel to make them genuine believers. We see this unfold here. Look at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon, sometimes called Simon the sorcerer, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Now, this form of magic isn't just trickery or the practice of illusions like a David Copperfield. This is someone who's in connect with the occult in some way. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him. That's the same lingo used to describe what they did when they heard the gospel. They, 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 focused, they, they paid attention and, and tried to analyze what was going on. They paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They thought of him as some kind of deity or extension of deity. He was a bit of a local hero. Verse 11, And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. A local celebrity of sorts, a regional celebrity that wowed the people with his tricks, his illusions, and his occult practices or divinations. His trickery was so, was so pointed that it was known as sorcery and it was impressive. In fact, Some of the early church fathers 
say that Simon was responsible for various occult-based actions and movements in the early life of the church or ones that threaten the church. But what we have for sure is what's in Holy Writ and it's before us. Kent Hughes, who I referred to earlier, puts it colorfully as he describes Simon. Simon, he says, was probably known, a known expert in the occult. Some surmise that he was a renegade Jew. As a prophet-motivated enchanter, his style was a combination of theosophical rubbish, profitable eclecticism, and a dominating personality. First-century combination of Harry Houdini and Madame Blavatsky. Perhaps he wore saffron robes marked with signs of the Zodiac and made theatrical entrances. This would have been Simon. But when Philip and the other Christians came preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit came and demons were legitimately cast out, every time they cast them, it wasn't just a divination that he did work once and not the other time in his wizardry or whatever he did that was uh, ebb and flow. This was happening, and he saw the power of the gospel come upon these people. He was enthralled by it. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, we can puzzle over this because it says he believed. I think it's descriptive of what he was doing outwardly and expressing. Like other people, we believe and they were baptized. He was part of this movement that was happening outwardly. John Stott says, well, especially talking about a historic narrative that's describing some outward action, he says and notes that New Testament language does not always distinguish between believing and professing to believe. We have to see how it plays out in life and practice. Professions like this aren't the end goal anyways. The purpose of preaching the gospel isn't just to get people to say outwardly that they believe. There's much more to it than this. Discipleship, growth in grace, is the end goal of evangelism. Proclaiming the message of the gospel, God does the converting. God does the transferring someone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He knows that. And outward expression has value. But ultimately, it's the growth in grace manifested as the Spirit works in a person that shows they really grip grace in its effect in their lives. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So the apostles back in Jerusalem find out, lo and behold, the gospel has reached the Gentiles. Now at this point, the Holy Spirit was given through the power of God and the pronouncement, if you will, of the apostles. And it was limited to Jerusalem and the Jewish Christians. Now it was about to expand. And so the apostles come up to see, confirm, and pray for the Spirit to be unleashed. Verse 15, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on, him, on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. There was an apparent delay in how the Holy Spirit indwelled new believers in those early days of the church. The apostles integral. They were commissioned agents to the coming of the Spirit in Jerusalem. And now, as Jesus had promised, the Spirit would come upon them, giving them the ability to witness for him. And this would happen in Jerusalem. It would happen in Judea. And now it's happening in Samaria and opens to the uttermost parts of the world. But notice what Simon's response is. 
Remember, it's not just about professions of faith here. Something deeper that comes from real evangelism. Verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. See, he sees this in his own context. They lay their hands on him and the Spirit came. Is this a magic act? What is this? He offered them money when he saw this. Verse 18. Saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't ask for the Holy Spirit. He asks to be able to give the Holy Spirit, and he'll pay them for it. By the way, the term simony or simony comes from this. The idea that you could buy religious favor or spiritual gifts or God's grace. It's what Calvin got so aggravated among other things, with the Roman church at the time, that they were selling indulgences, selling spiritual favors for the giving of money. But it's not much different than the health and wealth preachers who say, you give your money to me, and then God will bless you with this, that, or the other, and they equate it with spiritual blessing. Simony, from Simon the sorcerer, that's what this comes from. Calvin said, Simon would have bought the grace of the Spirit with money. We must note the true definition of simony. It is a wicked buying and selling of the gifts of the Spirit. Yet, while the text says that he believed, it seems it was more of a description of his outward response and an inward reality, and that comes with the confirmation of the Apostle Peter, who says in verse 20, May your silver perish with you. He sees through to the motives of Simon. May your silver perish with you, because Simon's tied to the earthly stuff, to money. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That's someone who doesn't understand the gospel at all. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. You are not in a good place before the living and true God. Repent, turn. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. This is not someone ascertaining that Simon was a believer who's just struggling. This is a man who did, was not right with God. He made a profession, though. Yeah, if people make professions. Verse 23, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. He was just jealous over what he saw the disciples do or the Christians do and how quickly the attention, as the word literally says, turned from him to them in the gospel. And notice what Simon says. They were t- Simon was told to repent, to pray for repentance. But look what his response is. He answered, pray for me to the Lord. He, he doesn't pray to the Lord. He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. I don't want whatever this bad thing is going to, I don't want that to happen to me. It doesn't seem that Simon gets it. This is why Wherever we are, we don't stop preaching the gospel. We don't preach it, get responses, and then move on. The preaching of the gospel never stops. It's a constant diet of every Christian in their growth and grace. It never gets old. You could be a Christian for 30 years, and you will not be bored hearing the message of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins through trust in Christ. You'll never get sick of that. And we have to hear it constantly. It's the thing that keeps rooting us. And then as we study the whole counsel of God... 
and he tells us the things that we should obey, we do so from the place of our salvation, the place of our settled adoption, and then we can live in that stability, in that security, knowing we are his. When we sin, he doesn't drop us because we're in Christ. And that grows, and it never gets old, and we need the means of God's grace to continually remind us of that grace, and that's how we see victory over sin over time. And so it's not about a profession of faith when you were at a Christian concert back in 1988. It really doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with, do you trust in Jesus now? That's the issue. And Simon may have professed faith, but that wasn't the end goal. The end goal was to see God glorified through his transformed life. And what transforms a person's life is the gospel. The church should consistently preach the gospel even to itself. Outward professions, while they have some value, they can be false, and we see that here. And this leads us to a final point that I would like you to recognize from the passage. There is a bit of a settled methodology about the spread of the gospel. You would think in Jerusalem, with a certain rootedness in religion, there might be one way you share the gospel. Maybe when you get to Samaria, there's something different. Maybe when you get to the uttermost parts of the world, we might use a different method so that it would be effective. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't contexts to consider. Different languages already, to some degree, admits that you have to adapt what you're proclaiming, not the message, but you have to use a different language so people can understand it. But the method is still the same. It's the declaring of the gospel. It's the teaching of the gospel. It's the speaking of the gospel. It's the uttering of the message of the gospel. We sometimes lump other things into what the gospel is. And showing mercy to people is not the gospel. That's a fruit of the gospel. The gospel is preached, or it's taught, or it's declared. It's proclaimed. It's something that has to be said. It has to be communicated. We should do all those other things, and the church should be about a great many of them. But those are fruits of the gospel in our life, and they're ways that we would like to introduce a setting to preach the gospel. The power of the church comes from clarity about the declaration of the gospel, and people transformed by the gospel will do a great many wonderful things that are compassionate, caring, concerning, self-sacrificial, but they're rooted in forgiveness of our sins through Christ. And this methodology is on full display early in the church's life and now. And what do we have as a fruit constant explosion of the church whenever the gospel's preached. Even though it's persecuted, even though there's all sorts of social injustices in Rome, what do they do? They preach the gospel. They can't solve all those issues, but they can solve a greater one, the most important one, which is our eternal relationship with God, whom we will live in relationship to one way or the other. And that's the greatest mercy we can show is by proclaiming this message. And the methodology is always clear. Verse 4, those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. What did Philip do? He went and proclaimed to them Christ. Proclaiming the word and proclaiming Christ are synonymous. I said that earlier. Think about this for a moment with me. Evangelism happens with proclamation. Evangelism is announcing the gospel message. Preaching the word is preaching the word about Christ. That's what the Bible is. Genesis starts with the origin of man's sin and his separation from God, and immediately in Genesis 3 promises the coming of Christ to take down the dividing wall of separation so that we might be united with God again through Christ. The whole Old Testament is the 
fulfillment of God's covenant promises to bring Messiah. The New Testament is the testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. So preaching the word means to preach Christ. Really, sermons from preachers should always be Christ-centered. It may not always be the, the thumping point of a message that we're in, but the backdrop will always be couched in Christ because it's Christ who is our hope, the hope of glory, and everything makes sense in light of Jesus in the Scripture. So preaching the Word, speaking it, teaching it, proclaiming it, is preaching Christ. The Bible is ultimately the story of God's redemption through Christ for God's glory. It's not primarily a book about general history. We can trust it where it speaks to history, but that's not its primary purpose. It's not primarily a book of science in the same way. It's not primarily a book of customs, rules, or proverbs. It contains elements of those things, but it's fundamentally about Christ. And the methodology for for spreading this is by teaching it, by preaching it, by being clear clear about what we're saying the Bible says. This is what we see over and over and over again. Verse 12, they believed Philip, how? As he preached good news about the kingdom. Now, we know that Philip was doing gracious things, merciful things, casting out demons and healing people. But they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. These are pronounced teachings. Verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard, what did they hear? That Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John. Verse 22, speaking a word, the apostles They say, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if it possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. A clear, communicated message. Verse 25. When they had done what? Testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Testifying to the word of the Lord, spoke the word of the Lord, preach the word, proclaim Christ, preach the gospel. Calvin said, This was therefore the sum of the apostles' doctrine, faithfully to utter those things which they had learned of the Lord, and not their own inventions or the inventions of any man else. Therefore we see that they were so inflamed to further the glory of Christ that whithersoever they came, they had him in their mouth. Whithersoever. I want to conclude by pointing something out that shows the transformation of this gospel that's being preached. It's not only that the gospel message, when people become believers as it's preached, are transformed, and we should not let any barrier get in the way. That's true. But I want you to see something very vivid here. Uh, This display, using Peter and John like they're used, shows when Jesus said, I will build my church, this is what he's doing. When he said that you will receive power and you will be my witnesses, Knowing the church expands by God's supernatural work in this power of transformation the gospel does should spur us all on to evangelism. Transformation takes place through the preaching of the gospel, and we see it in John in particular. Listen to what I'm saying about this. I've been able to preach through John, in the, or excuse me, Luke, in the evening services at Lee Summit, and in so doing, every once in a while, something just strikes me as immediate parallel, an immediate parallel to the book of Acts, which is really the second, the, the second volume of Luke. In the last year of Jesus' earthly ministry, the disciples were still kind of this bumbling group. 
not faithful at all, struggling with the message it was given to them. I don't think they really were born again until after Jesus rose again. And yet Jesus would send them out to proclaim this message, and they would largely be rejected. But I want you to listen to what happens when he tells them to go talk to Samaritans during his earthly ministry and then tie it to the passage we, just, we have just seen here in Luke 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is Jesus. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. What does that mean, make preparations for him? Well, we know what it means now. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. He's only focused about the Jews. He doesn't care about us. The Samaritans rejected his messengers. And when his disciples, James and John, when they saw it, guess what they said? Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? He turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. They still didn't understand. What does this mean, preparation for Jesus? John wanted them, make no mistake, to be burned alive. He wanted flames to come down and, and, and scorch them from the earth. That was what John wanted for those filthy Samaritans. Now we come to the passage before us in verse 14. A year and a half later, maybe, two years at the most. What is different? Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them of all people, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. What's the difference? John's been transformed by the gospel. See, if you're transformed by the gospel and I'm transformed by the gospel, the barriers go away and we tell anybody we can. John wanted them scorched from the earth. Now he wants them to receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. It doesn't end there. Verse 25, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, this is John and Peter, they returned to Jerusalem. They didn't go back one way to Jerusalem right away. Look what they did. Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Brothers and sisters, transformations take place through the preaching of the gospel. And by the way, it's not just us preaching the gospel so other people get transformed. It's because we've been transformed. Let's pray. Lord, the witness of these early scattered Christians is an inspiration to us to be bold for Christ. Please grant us opportunities to be strong and clear witnesses for Christ wherever you may place us. Lord, wherever you may put us, I pray. Pray that you give us a readiness to share Christ with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family. Even those people who we have a problem with, there's some way they've offended us, we've offended them, or we have something built up in our mind, some sinful barrier that we've allowed to raise up or have been raised up by someone else's doing whatever. May you please break down that barrier so that we might show the greatest compassion that can be shown. That is to share with them this good news, this good news of Christ. May you continue to expand your kingdom through the evangelism practiced by your people wherever you have placed us. I pray this in Christ. Amen.